Hi, I'm Andy Sohn. Camp Arcadia and Church Extension Fund are two of my favorite ministries. I came to camp for teen and family weeks and worked on staff there for four of the best summers of my life. I grew in mind, body, and spirit. CEF's mission to help build God's kingdom is integral to places like camp that make ministry happen. CEF provides loan and investment options for Lutherans and other ministries. To learn more about how you can get involved, visit mi-cef.org. Church Extension Fund, building the future in Him. Welcome to the 2022 season of the Arcadia Cast. Camp Arcadia's Dean and Lecturers program recorded live in the assembly during the 100th anniversary season. In groupings of episodes, we will feature each series of lectures shared during camp's 2022 season. So grab your cup of coffee and imagine Lake Michigan out the windows to your right as you tune in and join the camp community in listening and learning. So good to have you back this morning. So good to actually see familiar faces now, because I got to know some of you over the last day, got to have some conversations, got to connect with you as human beings, uh, and looking forward to more of those conversations as we go through the rest of the week and after today as well. Lots of wonderful feedback and and lots of good questions uh, from you as as well. It's my favorite part about camp, uh, is not doing this part, but as much as the processing and the talking afterwards. Today, I want to start our conversation about cosmopolitan Christianity in the country of Kenya. So I was there with Trinity Lutheran Church in Spring, Texas. There's some proud representatives. Okay, fantastic. Very good. They, they told me there were others, and now I know who you are. So good to see you. Um, I was down in, in Houston, Texas area, and uh, Ray and Flora Tackard recruited me into what they called Trinity Ablaze, and they were going and doing vision clinics in various uh, parts of of Kenya, and they're they're still ongoing in in this mission, and they've expanded that in several ways as well. Uh, And as part of that, I started to talk with our uh, Lutheran church partners there in Kenya, uh, and some of the, the, the pastors and professors and people who were running mission programs there in Kenya, and, and they brought me in to be part of what they were doing in Muslim Christian dialogue. Uh, and so I was doing some consulting and some conversations with them, learning tons along the way from them as well. And I was there in October 2013 at a very particularly difficult point in the history of Muslim Christian relations in Kenya, because in September 2013, and some of you may remember these headlines. Uh, several men from a group called Al-Shabaab, which means the youth, uh, and they were predominantly Somali Muslims, entered into the Westgate shopping mall in Nairobi and held it down for a number of hours, killing multiple people there. And so when I arrived in October for a consultation that we had already planned on Muslim-Christian dialogue, I was aware that there was going to be heightened tension and there were going to be real things that people were dealing with as we were less than two miles away from the Westgate shopping mall to have these consultations. And so as I sat down with these pastors and these professors and these leaders of the Lutheran church, but also other churches in Kenya, to talk about Muslim-Christian dialogue among Christians first before we met with Muslims later, I was doing a lot of listening. I was not doing a lot of talking at that point in time. And I was asking these pastors and these leaders, how do you view... Somalis? How do you view Muslims? 
And there was a lengthy conversation about the history and can you need to understand this and obviously what happened in September. But one of the things that stood out in that conversation is that they said, we don't really call them Somalis. There's kind of a, a byword that we use to talk about Somalis. We call them shifta, shifta. And, and this was a, a Kiswahili word that means bandit. And so during the foundation of the, the modern Kenyan Republic, after the colonial powers were, were pushed out, and the establishment of a Kenyan national identity, which really didn't exist before because there were various tribes in Kenya, and tribal identity is still extremely important in Kenyan politics. Uh, but as Kenyatta was trying to uh, unify the Kenyan people, he needed someone to compare them against. And they said, we Kenyans are civilized, as opposed to people like the Shifta, who are bandits. And so that became part of a national identity and dialogue in Kenya. We are civilized. They are the Shifta, the bandits. And, and all the pastors and the professors and the leaders that were there in that room, they said, that won't do any longer. Because maybe back then when we were founding the nation of Kenya, the Somalis were over there and the Kenyans were all here. But now here in Nairobi, one of our largest ghettos in the city of Nairobi is made up of 90% Somalis. They live next door. The youth who went into the Westgate shopping mall, didn't live in Somalia. They live here in Nairobi, in Kenya. They walk down the road to take over the mall. We have to come up with a new imagination of who these people are and how we deal with them. And so then I asked, well, what's the metaphor you want to use? What's the terminology that you think is best for this moment? And uh, my, my friend Jacob, whose house I was staying at there in Nairobi, he's a very large man, and he leaned back, put his hands on his very large belly, and he said, well, Ken, I'll tell you this. I think the Somalis are our Samaritans. And what he had tapped into was an interesting ge geographic point, biblical point, right? Uh, Chad reminds us, geography matters. And what he was doing here was comparing, again, the Samaritans who were generally from the north above Jerusalem and Judea, and reminding or remembering the call that we would go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Judea to Samaria to the very ends of the earth with the gospel and the book of Acts, this pastor was saying, Somalis are different than us. They are not us, just as Samaritans were different than the Jews of Jerusalem and Judea. They had different customs, different practices that were related historically but had divided over time. So too, he recognized there is difference between us and them, but it is a redeemable difference. It's a difference that can be transformed. It's a relationship that can be transfigured. But as they continued to talk, they said, we also realized that it's a process that's going to take a long time. Now, in 2015, there was a movie came out that was called uh, Watu Wote. And Watu Wote is a fictional retelling of another event of real-life horror in the lives of Kenyans and Somalis. In December 2015, a group of al-Shabaab terrorists stormed a bus headed toward the border with Somalia, and they demanded that the Christian passengers separate for targeted execution. Now, this is a fictional retelling of a real moment. Men enter the bus with guns, and say, if you are Christian, please stand up and exit the bus so that we can kill you. 
Now, all the Muslim passengers immediately responded without planning it beforehand. If you want to kill us, then kill us. There are no Christians or Muslims here. And the Christian women quickly gave the, or sorry, the Muslim women quickly gave the Christian women hijabs to wear so that they may pass and not be killed. Christian men were hidden behind bags or behind groups of Muslim men, and no one was killed that day. This movie was made and produced just two years after the Westgate shopping mall attack. And it was a national conversation around the event and around the film that you see kind of depicted here. It's a little too bright for the, for the screen and the picture to come through. But it shows the ongoing process of what Kenyans and Somalis and Somalis and Kenyans living together in close proximity across borders, at borders, in each other's nations are dealing with. There remain various disagreements. There remains otherness. There's still tension there. Lives are in danger still. But, as Pastor Jacob would say, they're on a journey of transformation. They're on a journey, the Christians in that area, of transfiguration. I'm reminded here of a quote from Kwame Appiah, who's a West African philosopher and scholar who wrote the book on cosmopolitanism called Cosmopolitanism. <laughs> he wrote, conversations across boundaries of identity, whether they be national or religious or something else, fill in the blank here, begin with the sort of imaginative engagement you get when you read a novel or you watch a movie like Watuwote or you attend to a work of art like some of the art we looked at yesterday that speaks from some place other than your own. The encounters, he said, properly conducted, are valuable in themselves. The very encounter is worth it. Conversation across difference and boundaries of identity doesn't have to lead to a consensus, doesn't have to lead to watering down differences, doesn't have to end with the song Kumbaya when everyone actually hates each other still. Especially not when it comes to values, not to the things that are of the utmost importance to us, that we hold deep within our souls. It's enough, he said, that it helps people get used to one another. Today we're going to be talking about our cosmopolitan options, or as I have here in the text that may be hard for some of you to read, Choices for Navigating the Cosmopolitanization of the Late Modern. So yesterday, we talked about the cosmopolitanization of the late modern. The fact that you cannot get rid of the other even if you wanted to, and Lord knows you do. So what are our options for engagement? How do we deal with and navigate this diversity and difference. And it may not be as dramatic or perhaps as problematic as what Kenyans and Somalians are doing and dealing with in their context. But we also have, in general, three options, and then I'm going to invite us into perhaps another way. But the three options we usually are prone to choose when dealing with engaging in difference is being defensive against, trying to be relevant to, or trying to seek purity from, being defensive against, being relevant to, or trying to seek purity from. So first, 
defensive against. When we choose to be defensive against, this is the stuff that makes biological sense, right? We all learn about the fight or flight. Okay, so purity from, flight end of the spectrum. Fight on the defensive against end of the spectrum, okay? So when we are confronted with difference, when we're confronted with an attack, when we're confronted with something that threatens us, we have one of two options generally, right? Fight or flight. Defensive against is the fight choice. So as we experience the shift from Christian privilege to religious plurality, or we encounter people who are different than us politically or nationally or whatever it may be, we seek in this instance to retain and defend the privilege of being Christian within the larger world. A lot of this is published in papers and thought pieces and in books that fly off the shelves, okay? You love tuning in to this program. You love clicking on this headline. You like buying this book and probably buying it for your friends or your family who you disagree with, right? And saying, you should read this book. It will convince you. I'm telling what. Now, these books and these articles and these shows and these podcasts usually identify two principal problems with the United States in particular. The first being secularism, which as we discussed yesterday, is less about becoming less religious and more about a pluralization about what religion means and what religion can be. And then the second would be scientism. Now, I'm not going to go deep into secularism and scientism today, but these are usually seen as two of the main problems in U.S. culture and its denigration according to this perspective. Now, the Christian response to this or the broader Christian cultural response to this seems to be more aggressive and more apologetic engagement, defensive engagement. Apologetics meaning defense. Okay? This is a seeking of politics for power as well. Again, seeking to reinstate Christian privilege as we see it eroding or, or washing away, and we feel we're becoming a minority among minorities, which is a, a sociological reality that we're watching happen right now. And we seek to reinstate our primacy, reinstate our power, reinstate our political will. Now, there's lots of big ways that this is at, at play in the United States. But one way that I saw this at work in the context of Katy, Texas, was at a, a local mosque. And so uh, Muslims in the area had moved in because of oil industry, tech work going on in Houston. They'd moved out to the Burbs. And they were traveling about 20 miles into the nearest mosque. So they decided to pool their resources, buy a plot of land, and plant a church. I mean, plant a mosque, okay? You can laugh. It's okay. You can chuckle at my, my, my mistakes. It's all right. But it sounds very similar, right? People who pooled their resources bought a plot of land. They didn't get it donated like the Starkeys. But they got the land, and they started to build a place out in the burbs. Sounds like the American dream, right? They all had nice houses in the, in the neighborhood, they were easily able to fundraise all the money because they were pretty rich. So they bought the plot of land and they put a trailer on it where they would hold their prayers before they could finish the mosque. Now, they, they, they went around and then introduced themselves to the neighbors, as you do, okay? And they took halal fruitcake to all their neighbors, bringing it around, saying hello, and there was one neighbor in particular who didn't take kindly to them moving into his neighborhood, the unfortunate thing is he lived right next door. So this guy shared a chain link fence with their property 
And he decided, after receiving the halal fruitcake, to throw it in the trash. And then, on Fridays, when Muslims were gathering there for prayers as a community, the equivalent of our Sunday morning, he decided to invite other people in the neighborhood around for pig races right on the chain link fence. Yeah. The unfortunate part is he was a member of a local Christian church. And where he advertised these pig races was at his church. As the old saying goes, they will know we are Christians by our love or by our pig races. This continued for two years. They weren't getting the message because they continued to construct the mosque, and so he decided instead to contact other neighbors on each side of the property and put up these signs. I'm sorry the picture's not quite coming through, but he put up these signs on the edge of the property with a cross and a star of David. And everywhere you looked on the property where they were building the mosque were these signs telling them, you are not welcome here. Now, they built the mosque. The mosque exists. They bought that guy out. They, they, they bought his property for plenty of money, and he left peaceably afterward. There was no kumbaya at the end. But this, for me, is a, one example of a defensive against. Now, it might be an extreme example, but it is an example of being defensive against the diversity that has literally moved into our neighborhood and seeking to retain and defend the privilege of being Christian within the larger world. Now, Another option is to be relevant to. Now, relevance to is kind of like the exact opposite of defensive against, okay? So being relevant to is seeking to be connected and remaining relevant to the pressing issues of the day, constantly paying catch-up to whatever the newest kind of calling word or calling card is of some progressive cause or cultural uh, touch point. It includes things like social activism and social justice, right? And distinctives are made less or marginal, and differences are downplayed. Now, within the Christian church, this plays out in a couple of different ways. One way is what has often been called the seeker-sensitive model. Have you, have you heard that terminology before? Right? To be seeker-sensitive. We, we want to be sensitive to what non-Christian or post-Christian or unchristian people think and do and act, and we want them to feel comfortable if they come to our church or if they interact with Christians. Now, many of your churches may be seeker-sensitive, right? Uh, seeker-sensitive is much broader and bigger within like non-denominational worlds. You could think of like Saddleback Church in, in Southern California and Rick Warren, the Purpose Driven Life, right? That's like the quintessential seeker-sensitive church. They even had this character that they would talk about called Saddleback Sam. Have you ever heard of this guy? They literally drew pictures of Saddleback Sam. Like, he'd be wearing cargo pants. He'd have a tucked-in kind of like plated shirt. He'd have a nice 401k, etc. you know. So they really tried to be seeker-sensitive to Saddleback Sam and remain relevant to who he was. That was their whole point of existence. Get him into church, make him feel safe, make him feel comfortable. Let him wear his Hawaiian shirts and cargo pants if he wants to, Right? Now, you see this also at work within what some people call ecumenical or mainline churches, to say they're chasing after whatever social justice cause is there and trying to constantly remain relevant to that conversation. Now, you might see this at work uh, in, in various types of denominations in the United States, but they're the ones who are trying to use all the right pronouns, to, to use all the right conversations, to be up on the political conversations that are usually happening on the left side 
of a progressive, secularizing, pluralizing culture. So again, there's a wide spectrum of relevance too, but it's somewhere between being kind of seeker-sensitive as Christians and then being like ecumenical, progressive Christians on the other side. Now the third option is purity from. Purity from. Now this option wants to preserve orthodoxy, right theology, right dogma, and orthopraxy, right practice of the traditional church, but they take the view that there is no way to do that in the world anymore. So we must remove ourselves from it and seek purity within our own community in order not to be spoilt by the world and wait for a time when we can reemerge in it and, and help save the world from itself after it's already realized how horrible it's become. This is the argument of actually a popular book called The Benedict Option. And some of you may have read this or may have encountered it along the way. In the Benedict option, the author Rod Dreher says, uh, or he calls it the Ben-op, is a strategic withdrawal of traditional Christians who he says need to root themselves more deeply in the historic faith. So he actually calls for living in intentional communities kind of removed from society. So you've got this house kind of pictured out in the fields. Each of these options, to me, makes sense in some way, shape, or form. Like, I get the reaction, right? If you got defensive against, is the fight mode. Purity from is the flight mode, right? This morning, I was running out on the marsh, and I, I got out there, and there suddenly appeared a deer out of the marsh. Like, just, yeah. And both of us had a moment, you know, like, what are we going to do? <laughs> and I went to fisticuffs, okay? And the deer ran away, as they often do. Um, and the deer and I had a journey together because the deer jumped up onto the boardwalk and then continued to run three-quarters of a mile down the boardwalk as I continued to run three-quarters of a mile down the boardwalk <laughs> because on the other side was their little doe. So I was stuck between a doe and a hard place, right? So I didn't know what to do, and I kept running, and the deer kept running as well and looking back being like, what's up, dude? Why are you keeping a run from me? I was just and kept kept running away and running away. So I understand when we are faced with an attack or we are threatened or we feel like we're losing the power and privilege that we once enjoyed, our natural reactions are either to want to fight and to keep running and to keep going and to own that space as I did, that deer stood no chance, or to run away in the other direction, or perhaps to just go along to get along, be relevant to the society, be re relevant to the conversations, and try to play catch-up to whatever's happening around us so that we don't get left by the wayside. But, but as I look at these options, I see problems with each one of them. And, and I hope you can too. Because there's probably no place we could go to remain pure from the forces at work in our world that I described yesterday. You know, some of you said, well, I moved out to this neighborhood or I went to this place and I, th I thought I was escaping diversity and then you guys told me, I found out I didn't, right? Or some of you were talking to me about the shoes, right? The shoes that you wear. And you're like, yeah, now I have to think about where they were made, Ken. Thanks, you know? <laughs> we're starting to realize that maybe we can't get purity from. And, and I think we maybe realize that defensive against isn't a lot of fun, is it? <laughs> it's not great to hate your neighbors. It's not great to hate your family members that you disagree with. It's not fun to get in arguments at every single family gathering, including maybe at Camp Arcadia. I don't know. I'm waiting for it. Comes on Thursday, usually. <laughs> and relevance, too, 
loses us of some of our, as, as one of my uh, conversation partners over the last days called, our saltiness. What makes us distinctive? What makes us different? What makes us unique? Kills our witness. Kills what is countercultural or cross-cultural to our message. And so I can understand why each of these options is perhaps tempting. But what I want to talk about this week and particularly lean into today is think about what if there is another way forward? What if there's a way where we can deal with the transgression of boundaries, of diversity and difference, and along the way see ourselves and the diversity and the difference and the difficulties we face because of it transformed or even transfigured in the process? Because the essential problem I see with defensive against or relevance to or purity from is a lack of imagination. All of those responses assume that these differences will always remain. But could we, as Kwame Appiah talks about, or as some of my Somalian and Kenyan friends are trying to deal with in a much worse situation, imagine a new possibility of how we might relate to one another and be transformed or even transfigured in the process. Now, the first step in this process is admitting our fear and admitting our problems and our prejudiced views of the other. I was at the Jewish, Muse- uh, sorry, the Jewish Museum of Berlin recently, and there's an obvious story being told at the Jewish Museum of Berlin, Germany, right? But it also tells this multi-century, actually multi-millennia history of Jews and Judaism in Europe and in Germany in particular. And while I was there, there was a large high school group that was, was coming on kind of a, uh, a tour of the museum. It was a midweek. It was a rainy, cold February day. And so there weren't many people in the museum. But I watched as, as a little old man was leading this tour group of teenagers. And honestly, I was kind of waiting for the train wreck. That's, I, I wanted to watch it just to see these teenagers devour him up or see him devour those teenagers up. I knew something was going to happen. And so I kind of started watching the process as this little man was going to take these teenagers through the Jewish Museum of Berlin. Now, he got to a place where there were two sets of doors. And as he was talking to the kids, he looked at them and he said, you now will have to make a decision and a choice. And you're going to have to look at yourselves to be able to do it. And I was like, ooh, it's going to get good. I could sense it. And I was kind of this uh, you know, interloper on the, on the side. And he said, I want you to take a good, hard look at yourself. Think about your thoughts and your feelings. And then choose which door you're going to walk through. He's like, because you're going to have a very different experience of this next part of the museum, depending upon which door you walk through. And he said, I want you to think. If you believe you are not a prejudiced person, walk through this set of doors. If you believe instead that you have prejudice at work within you, walk through these sets of doors. And you will have two very experiences, two very different experiences of the museum as you go through. And then he just sat there and let the kids decide. And you could see the kids kind of looking at each other and being like, well, I don't want to admit that I have prejudices, right? especially on the Jewish Museum of Berlin. Like, that's not where you do that. I don't want to look bad, right? And they kind of like started to sort each other out, and then you started to see a big group of the kids kind of like mummer to each other, and then they started to choose the non-prejudice door. 
And, and you saw a whole big group of them walk through the non-prejudice door. And there were two brave souls still standing in the hallway. And they looked at each other and they're like, well, I guess we're the racists in the room. <laughs> and then they walked through the other door. And that little old man stood up from his chair and then walked through the prejudiced door. And, and I quickly walked in through the prejudiced door to see what he was going to do with the prejudiced kids. And when I got in there, all of the kids were there in the same room. But they were going to have a very different experience of the museum. And the room they stepped into was this one. It's a very dark room filled with heavy metal pieces that look like screaming faces. And it's a representation of the Holocaust. It's a massive, empty, sad tragic space. And suddenly, those kids were faced with understanding their own prejudice in a way that maybe they never had before. And that little old Jewish man who was leading the tour looked at them and he said, it's very tempting to walk through museums like this and blame anti-Semitism or prejudice or racism on a certain group of people. He said, but the first step in understanding what happened during the Holocaust, is to understand that we all play a part in prejudice. We all have prejudice. It matters what you do with it and admitting what you don't know, maybe even about yourself. It's very tempting, as he said, to blame anti-Semitism on the Nazis, slavery and racism on past generations, or interreligious conflict on jihadists. It's much more difficult to acknowledge our own prejudices, our own racism, our own othering. Because I think we're afraid of it. I think we're like that deer running down the boardwalk, not wanting to confront the really ugly, dark parts of ourself. I get to lead liturgy when people allow me to be a pastor these days. And my favorite part of the liturgy, if I'm being honest, is confession. And the absolution that comes afterwards, they're paired together. But confession is this really beautiful time where we get to look, as the song that woke us up this morning said, at the man in the mirror. If some of you were looking to, uh, listening to Michael Jackson this morning in the inn. The first step in dealing with our fractured world is to not be delusional about ourselves. The first step in living in our fractured world is to not be delusional about ourselves. Silo mentalities, theories that it's all about the other person and what they're doing in the world, or enemy-driven politics and perspectives flourish because they provide us with a simple way to explain a complex problem without the need for critical self-reflection. And so we must start with critical self-reflection. We must start with dealing with the complexity of our own prejudice cells. We do it all the time, folks. We look at complex problems all the time. I've been talking to many
cosmos, the chasm. And even some talked about a hole at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee where perhaps they would descend, just like the portal to the gate of Hades that Chad was talking about earlier. And so as they're heading to the other side, the place where good Jewish boys were not supposed to go, what happens as they're in the boat? A storm hits. And I love Jesus' reaction. What does he do? He takes a nap. But the Sea of Galilee used to come up to these rocks, and it's a nice place to picture this event happening. And what's interesting is this is over in the, the region. It could be further back. But this is kind of land that is disputed to this day. Uh, the, the, the actual town that they, they believe is, is Gadara, or the land of the Gadarenes, as we hear about it in the, the Gospel of Matthew, where this event took place, is in disputed territory to this day. And, and Paula and our dear friend Muhammad... Uh, were there on the Jordanian side of, of this kind of disputed territory between Israel and Palestine and Jordan and, and, and Syria. And we were at an archaeological site called Um Qais. And Muhammad is a Palestinian Muslim who lives in Jordan. He has never been to Palestine. But it is his home. And as we were standing there at Um Qais looking across, this is what we saw the Sea of Galilee in the hazy distance, and the hills were just on the other side, this encounter with the demoniac, or the demoniacs, could have occurred. 
And it was relevant to me that some 2,000 years later, this was still a place of division where you couldn't go to the other side, where the people who were other, the people who were different, were over there. And just as the Jewish boys who went with Jesus across the abyss to the other side couldn't imagine why you would want to go there, so too Muhammad looked over there and said to us that day, I don't think I will ever, ever 